Hey there! If you like true crime stories and you love being in the great outdoors, you have come to the right place. I'm Tara, your host. Welcome to Crime Off the Grid. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Crime Off the Grid podcast. And as a reminder, or if this is your first time listening, we talk about true crime stories from national parks and national forests and other off-the-grid places. All of our guests and co-hosts have years of experience as law enforcement officers, special agents, prosecutors, attorneys, victim specialists, or other first responders in wild places. And with that said, Abby is back with us. Hi, Abby. Hey, Tara. <laughs> well, as also as a reminder, Abby, <laughs> we always just start off laughing, like even though we haven't said anything at all. We just- I know. <laughs> well, we better get our laughing uh, out of the way here soon because this, <laughs> yeah, laughing it's probably true. shortly we won't be laughing too much. But uh, but just also a reminder, Abby has many years under her belt doing law enforcement in remote and wild places. So uh, anyway, I'm very glad you're here again. So tell me something new, something fun before we get into our case. Got anything? Uh, well, so I was trying to find happy news, which is yes, not always Yes, we kind of need easy. some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that the biggest, you know, Park Service news that's going around right now is that the, the National Christmas Tree fell down. <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> you mean like the, so the White was, House Christmas tree or is the White, White House, House Christmas tree fell down? Oh, oh. Well, was and it, it took a crane to put it back up? Was it already decorated? Have they lit it? Did they already do yeah, that? Yeah, it was lit, fully Aww. lit, and it just well, fell over. Hmm. But the upside is, so I guess they plant the trees in front of the White House, which I did not oh. know. Yeah, that's got to so be a they just, like, big hole. Yeah, they just got a crane and just tipped it back up. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, where did the? So, do you know where this year's tree actually came from? Yeah, I had to look it up. Um, it's from the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia. In that the Forest Service actually worked with the Park Service together to put that tree in front of the White House. So I think that's synergy at its best. <laughs> that was probably <laughs> uh, uh, a great act of whatever to actually get the Forest Service and the Park Service to work together on something. Yeah, like. that probably it's took really like a year of of top planning. secret meetings to make it right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. So that I'll have to go look, look at that. And that kind of puts me in the mood. I haven't even started my Christmas decorating yet. It's because I didn't know this for a long time, but the white house is a park service unit, which I didn't realize for a long time. So that's how the park service yeah. got involved. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Well, that's fun. Cool. And then there's, I'll say I found, um, I'll say this other piece of good news for the end of this story. <laughs> I was just going to say. Okay. Um, yeah, that's probably we might end on a happy news note. At the end of the story. Yeah, we'll end on a happy note. Because um, the story we're going to be talking about is actually pretty wild. And although I feel like if you're listening to us and you know that the title of this podcast is called Crime Off the Grid, you can expect some discussion of violent crime. <laughs> so I I really haven't felt the need to do any warnings or disclaimers. And I do hear that on some other podcasts. 
you know, hey, this podcast may be disturbing in nature. <laughs> However, today, this podcast for real may be disturbing in nature. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I do, I, I do want to shout out to, um, I do want to shout out and say, warning, this show contains graphic content. So to my, my friend, Annie, I know you don't want to listen to this one. Seriously, don't even, don't even open it. You're not going to like this one, but uh, so, um, <laughs> so no warning when it's a poop filled one, but <laughs> it's full of poop. You know, if there's no gross, warning or, for the poop you know, one, yeah, or just but there's know, a warning for this one. <laughs> a lot of them. I mean, they're tragic stories that we talk about a lot of crime, and but I just yeah, I feel like since this one's just extra extra gruesome, and so I, I just feel like I do have to do this little uh, uh, do a warning here. Well, this story actually took place a few decades ago and begins on the Yellowstone River, which flows northward through Yellowstone National Park. So it starts on the south end and it feeds into Yellowstone Lake, which is the largest alpine lake in the lower 48. Uh, fun facts. And then it drains out of Yellowstone Lake, dropping over the upper and lower Yellowstone Falls, which starts the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone within the park. And after passing through what's called the Black Canyon of the Yellowstone, the river flows northward into Montana between Northern Absorca Range and the Gallatin Range through Paradise Valley. And it flows right through the town of Gardner, Montana, and the town of Livingston, which both of those are, t- are in Park County, Montana which is important information. And then it turns eastward and northeastward, flowing across the northern Great Plains, past the city of Billings, Montana, and eventually flows into, do you know what river the Yellowstone River flows into, Abby? Trivia? Uh, The Missouri? Yes! Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, it flows into the Missouri River. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, all very beautiful leaving the leaving the park boundary just so beautiful going through Montana. So at three o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, July 11th, 1970, a man fishing on the banks of the Yellowstone River in Montana snagged a human body at the end of his line. And this poor guy was in shock and he had to drive to the nearest ranch to call the police, of course, no cell phones. So then Deputy Bigelow, who was stationed this reporting says at the entrance to Yellowstone National Park, which that's exclusive jurisdiction, so he wouldn't be stationed in the park. He was probably stationed at Gardner, Montana, I would guess. But uh, he responded, with the aid of some local men, the deputy waded into the river, which was actually dangerous, and the river's deep and swift and cold. And then he dragged the body to shore. Deputy Bigelow knew immediately this was no drowning case. It was murder. For starters, the head was missing. Well, that's, that's a clue. So probably not a natural cause of death, right? No, I wouldn't think so. And yeah. so Deputy Bigelow calls the sheriff, whose name is Don Gitoni, and he drove down with the coroner to the scene. The body was just covered in shorts for clothing, nothing else. And it was that of a male And besides the missing head, the arms had also been severed at the shoulders and the legs chopped off at the knees. The abdomen and chest were covered with stab wounds with a particularly large, ugly hole in the chest. Even the coroner looked shocked and said, I never saw anything like it. The poor fellow's been stabbed about 25 times and I figure he's been in the water about a day. 
He was a young fella, probably in his early 20s. He paused and said, and then there's one other thing. The heart is missing. The chest had been huh. cut open and the heart was removed. It's like not bad enough to just be dismembered, which is a horrible, like what it takes for a person to do that is kind of hard to fathom. But then they were stabbed a bunch of times. It's like a lot of crazy anger. And then, and then the heart, it just keeps getting worse. Yeah. I don't know if I got on this scene as law enforcement, what my thoughts. Yeah. That's when you drive really slow. Right. I don't know what I would have thought when I saw that. So now they've yeah. got to figure out who could this be? They got to identify this body and like all normal means of identifying the body, like the head and the hands had been deliberately removed. And then they wondered like, but why cut off the legs, you know, at the, at the knees? Why, why remove the heart? So that kind of puzzled them. And the only thing that this scene suggested to them was that it was from some, some form of a cult murder and there had been a rash of them recently, all connected with secret groups of devil worshipers. And that's about the same time that the Charles Manson murders were happening. Uh, and that those cases had been in the headlines, but similar bizarre killings were going on all over the USA. I, I did not realize that. So the torso Jeez. was taken by ambulance to the morgue in Livingston for an autopsy while police teletyped details of the victim to Wyoming and other neighboring states. And it was impossible to tell where the body had been dumped in the river. Like it could have been in the park for all they knew. And the Yellowstone river passed through Wyoming, you know, as we just said before entering Montana and after coming out of the national park. And so although police searched the river and its banks for many miles, no traces of the missing limbs were found. I can't imagine the task you would have in the days of teletype of trying to identify that person. Yeah. You know, you're in an area with visitors from all over the world and there's nothing that you can use to identify the person. It sounds like this was pre DNA. And then on top of that, you know, you've got limited technology and communication for different police agencies to to talk to each other it's not like a you know a missing person query would pop up that's that's a huge challenge yeah well the results of the autopsy did conclude that the victim had been stabbed 27 times with a sharp pointed blade of at least five inches in length in the removal of the head and limbs had been crudely performed, you know, definitely not Dexter style, possibly with a knife used to inflict the stab wounds. And the victim was in his early 20s and had been dead for 24 hours when found. So police just had to wait until someone was reported missing. Like you said, I mean, it could have been somebody from a foreign country for, for all they knew at the time. Now, 22-year-old James Michael Schlosser, S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R is how he spelled his last name, had the grave misfortune of picking up two hitchhikers outside of the park. Unknown to Schlosser, the two men, Stanley Dean Baker and Harry Allen Stroop from Sheridan, Wyoming, were high on LSD. Schlosser was a popular young social worker, and he had set out on the Friday before to drive to Yellowstone Park from Roundup, Montana in his 1969 Opal Cadet sports car, which was yellow with black racing stripes. 
I looked up a picture of that car. Uh, you'd think it would have been in a Starsky and Hutch show or something. It was pretty fancy and actually pretty new. So I, they might have paid pretty well in social work back in those days. I don't know. Maybe the salaries just stayed the same ever since. That's I probably more like it. Um, well, Schlosser drove his passengers toward the park's north entrance, but the three were told by the entrance staff that the campgrounds were full. So they ended up camping at a site outside of Gardner, Montana. And when Schlosser didn't return for work on Monday, his colleagues got in touch with his landlady and discovered he didn't return home from his weekend. So on that Monday morning, a teletype message came chattering into the sheriff's office in Livingston concerning a missing person who resembled that description of the torso. James Michael Schlosser had been reported missing from the town of Roundup that same morning. So that's somebody that uh, they think that they can match to the body. And Schlosser was described as being six feet tall and weighing 200 pounds. The age, height, and weight fitted the torso. And the sheriff put out an alert for sightings of his Opal Cadet car. Because they were thinking, well, maybe that car had been dumped in the area. Now, an hour later, from the report of Schlosser missing, that same car was in a collision with a pickup truck on a dirt road all the way in Monterey County, California just a few miles from the Pacific Ocean. That same car crashed in California how much later? Well, right around the time on. the body it would was have been, found? It would have been a day after the body was found. And they believed okay, that the so body... In two days, they made it down to California. Most likely, yeah. Yeah, so they believed that the body had been... When it was recovered, it had been dead maybe 24 hours. And then the very next day after that, so yes, two days later... That car was in an accident in Monterey County. And the car had been traveling at a speed, uh, high speed, on the wrong side of the road, down on this dirt road. And the truck, pickup truck, actually won in that crash and only suffered a dented bumper. But the car was totaled. So the driver of the truck got out and approached the car from which two large young men were getting out. Both men looked like your stereotypical Californian hippies with long hair and beards. <laughs> one of the guys was blonde and the other had dark hair and the blonde man was about six feet tall and very strongly built and I don't like this description in this article that I read with shoulder length golden hair I'd, I'd probably have described him with you know dirty ratty yellow hair um, he, <laughs> yeah, he you know like so much I mean I kind of make him sound romantic. like he should be be on a yeah it's charming a cover of a romance nasty romance novel anyway <laughs> he wore bell it was ugly yellow hair that went all the way down to his shoulders there we go with the wind blowing <laughs> uh <laughs> the re wind blowing through his hair but it aggravated me when i when i read shoulder length golden hair that bothered me but he wore bell bottoms and an army fatigue jacket and his buddy all they say he was wearing cowboy boots and a green army field jacket which i'm guessing he had on pants but whatever that's all they said he was wearing, <laughs> you know, how old I am. When I was a kid, everybody seemed to wear those army fatigue jackets. I remember I just had to have one and I got one. I don't know. And you would, you would do writing on it. Like you would take a marker and write on it. And then other people would like sign your army fatigue jacket or something. Anyway, it's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but I, that was a fad back in the seventies. Anyway, the truck driver thought the hippies were actually friendly, so he wasn't too worried about them. 
So the pickup driver wanted to exchange driver's license, but surprise, what? Uh, No driver's license. No driver's license. Yeah, big surprise. So the pickup driver gets the registration number of their vehicle and suggested he drive them all to the nearest telephone booth so that the police could be notified of the accident. So both hippies, you know, were like, "Uh, okay, and got into his truck. But when they finally got to a gas station with a phone in the nearest town, both dudes got out and just ran away into the nearby woods. So I guess this guy's not getting his dent fixed. It was be yeah. probably his thoughts. Yeah. Among other things. I mean, I'm glad oh, he won the fight, but still. Yeah. Yes. Well, the pickup driver calls the police and said, told him about the incident. He gave him the registration number of the other vehicle. And what do you know, that came back as the car belonging to the missing Schlosser. And the California Highway Patrol was then alerted to keep an eye out for the two hippies who were wanted in connection with now a homicide. Trooper Randy Newton was out patrolling along the Pacific Coast Highway when he got the call over his radio. So he goes off onto a dirt road, assuming that the two fugitives couldn't have gotten far. And sure enough, he sees the suspects walking along the road just two miles out of the town trying to hitchhike. The trooper asked for ID, and of course they had none, but they actually easily admitted having been the two men in the Opal Cadet car that was involved in the accident. Newton arrested both men and called for more assistance. The blonde man. There's a real arrest, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wonder mean, if he knew what he had. <laughs> well, he did because they were wanted in connection with a homicide. That was the bolo yeah, that, that came out. That, with that would car. get your attention. Yes. The blonde man identified himself as Stanley Dean Baker, age 23, and seemed anxious to talk to the cops. And his companion identified himself as Harry Allen Stroop, age 20. Baker said they were both from Sheridan, Wyoming, and had been traveling together since June 5th, hitching rides when they could. And as per protocol of almost every law enforcement agency, the prisoners were searched incident to arrest. And in Baker's pockets, they found what looked like small lengths of bone. So, of course, the trooper says, what are these? And Baker just blurted out, they ain't chicken bones. They're human fingers. Yeah. Then he stated, matter of factly, I have a problem. I'm a cannibal. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, this earned him the nickname Uncle Fingers. You can Google that. (laughs) So Uncle uh, Fingers? Uncle Fingers. He, I don't know who referred to him as Uncle Fingers. I'm guessing all the cops involved. It didn't say. <laughs> but but if you Google Uncle Fingers, he, he comes up. Um, but can you imagine, Abby, arresting someone for, let's say, DUI? And you're searching the pockets and you find human fingers. And your suspect just tells you he's a cannibal. Actually, maybe don't look up Uncle Fingers, Tara. Oh, okay. Scratch that. Nobody look up Uncle Fingers. <laughs> This, sorry. I mean, unless you want to go down a really, really no, no, no. weird okay, sorry. set of rabbit holes on the internet. Yeah, only if you if you <laughs> add Uncle Fingers Cannibal to that, you might. Okay, sorry. Nobody look up Uncle Fingers. <laughs> I, I hate for anybody, <laughs> especially if you're under 18. Um, okay, that's good advice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if somebody tells you, hey, I'm uh, here's these human fingers and I'm a cannibal. Uh, curious when you ask for some backup or something, would you 
would you put that over the radio? Like, hey, I need some backup here. I've got a cannibal in custody. Would you say that? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I do. You only get see. one chance in your career to say that. Just like, right. But yeah. <laughs> and then I'd do it just to see what dispatch would come back and say. <laughs> Especially because at night, you know, the nighttime dispatchers might be a little lonely. And so (laughs) sometimes the radio traffic gets, gets interesting. It gets a little less formal after about 5 p.m. Right, 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 right. Yeah, because all the chiefs and bigwigs are gone home. (laughs) Well, both men were taken to the police station in Monterey. And Baker keeps talking in the patrol car about his compulsion to eat human flesh. He claimed to have developed a taste for it after having and this is interesting, electric shock treatment for a nervous disorder when he was 17. And then he was referring to himself to the cops as Jesus. He says his name is Jesus. Call me Jesus, I guess. At the police station, Detective Dempsey Biley took over the questioning. Baker was kind of boasting about how he had killed the owner of the Opal Cadet, but made a point to say that Stroop, his buddy, hadn't been with him at the time. He said that he and Stoop had split up when they reached Big Timber. So they were hitchhiking from Sheridan, Wyoming. He's claiming that when they got to Big Timber, they split up. And that's when he got uh, the ride with James Schlosser from Livingston. And then he goes on to say when Schlosser had said he was going to Yellowstone Park for the weekend, Baker had asked to go along. And then just those two had set up camp for the night close to the Yellowstone River. What Baker said in his statement was that sometime in the middle of the night, he had crept over to see a sleeping companion and shot him twice in the head with a twenty-two pistol that he always carried. Then he cut up the body into six parts, removing the head, arms, and legs. When asked what he had done with the man's heart, Baker just said, quote, I ate it raw, end quote. Jeez. So there's not a lot to say to that. That's pretty horrible. Yeah, it's terrible. He explained that he had cut off the dead man's fingers to have something to chew on and then dumped the rest of him, which was his torso, into the river along with the pistol before driving off in his victim's car. And supposedly the roommate, another roommate, the friend, was just like, cool. So the guy who had the car just did like is gone and we're just going to take it and had nothing to do with it. Yeah, according to Baker, Harry Stroop wasn't even present and he somehow just went back and picked him up. He insisted Stroop hadn't been involved in the murder. But Baker described the location of the camp where he'd killed Schlosser. And when police officers located it and searched it, they found evidence that murder had indeed taken place at that spot. And the ground was splattered. Here, here I'm getting graphic and gruesome here. The ground was splattered with dried blood and a blood-stained hunting knife was found. There was also, I'm quoting here, usual debris which accompanies any such murder, end quote, human bone fragments, teeth, skin, and a severed ear. So I told you it was gruesome. Yeah. At the jail, among Baker's possessions, was a recipe for LSD. And I almost, you know, I see the word recipe and I'm like, oh, I'll look up the recipe for L- recipe for LSD. But I decided <laughs> against that. I didn't know that was a th- whatever. That's just worded funny to me. But anyway, uh, and also he had a paperback book called The Satanic Bible, which was a handbook of devil worship with instructions on how to conduct a black mass. So there were 
early news reports on how Baker had openly talked about his involvement in the witchcraft and the occult. And at Stroop's trial, Baker was slated to testify to his involvement in the Church of Satan. And he also testified that studying the Bible of the Satanic faith gave him supernatural powers. He claims to have brought good weather to some rock festival in Toronto a month before killing Schlosser. And he also said he caused the death of Jimi Hendrix from afar. Oh my gosh. From afar. You know, like, you know, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about Jimi Hendrix's death and the whereabouts of his body. And I guess now that mystery has now been solved. So he caused <laughs> yeah. his death. Okay. Supposedly, Baker had experienced a devastating childhood accident that changed his behavior. I don't know exactly what that was supposed to have been, but he admitted he was very much into LSD. He claimed he had an ability to to perform self-hypnosis and described having blackouts. I wish I could do self-hypnosis. I would go, (laughs) make me be able to sleep. You're hypnotized. Now you will never eat chocolate or carbs again. (laughs) Those would be my (laughs) things I would do from self-hypnosis. But anyway, but he was, he did say he was under, well, I I can't self-hypnotize. I can't, I'm ADD. How in the world would I self-hypnotize myself? I don't know. Um, Just very, very, very short periods. Right. I'm self-diagnosed ADD. So he said he was under the influence of LSD at the time. And during a thunderstorm in the mountains along the Yellowstone River that night, he said he had a vision of talking with the devil. And Baker even admitted that he considered killing Stroop several times, but decided against it because, quote, true friends are hard to find, end quote. Oh, gosh. Aww. Aww, with that's friends so nice. like that. Exactly. Well, right. So the cult that Baker was involved in was considered a really sinister satanic cult. And they were alleged to practice human sacrifice in several parts of California. That whole, this was really going on a lot in Southern California. And they would lure young members from college campuses all over the Western half of the United States. The cult was called the Four Pi, P-I, or the Four P Movement. And the group's leader was referred to as, quote, the Grand Chingon, C-H-I-N-G-O-N, or head devil. And it was said that the head devil was a wealthy California businessman who's middle-aged and exercised his power by compelling younger members of the cult to act as slaves and murder random targets on command. The central object of this cult was to promote the total worship of evil. So, Fun fact, Charles Manson was also referred to as the Grand Chingon of his group, and both Baker's cult and Manson's cult were supposedly offshoots of the same cult. Anyway, I'm going to reissue the graphic warning. You can see with stories like this why people were on like high alert for devil-worshipping murders. Like It wouldn't take a lot of these kinds of stories to get out before people... We're looking for that everywhere. Everywhere. Well, there was, uh, I don't know when it was. I think the 90s even had a re-emergence of what they called the satanic panic. So a lot of things were blamed on Satan worshipers and stuff that really weren't. So 
I don't know when, you and know. I always heard about that, but I never understood mm-hmm. where it came from. But when you well, hear about between the Mansons and this, you're like, okay, yeah, I yeah. could see where that would maybe start, you know, getting into people's minds. Right. Well, witnesses who were, who came from the supposed, who were also supposed cult members said um, they drank blood and uh, often in their ceremonies. And so according to reports, it was human blood obtained from sacrificial victims murdered on a, quote, dragon festooned altar, end quote. So I'm picturing the stuff you see in those horror movies, you know, a big, ugly statue of a dragon and an altar in front of it. I guess that was a real thing. That's probably where that stuff in the movies came from. And that death was the result of stabbing with a custom-made six-bladed knife designed with blades of varied length to penetrate a victim's stomach first before the heart was then skewered, which caused death. So this stuff really happened. (laughs) Each sacrifice allegedly was climaxed by removal of the heart. Like, it, you know, they ended each sacrifice by the removal of the heart, which the cultists then divided up amongst themselves to eat. And then the parts that were left of the murdered bodies were put in a portable crematorium mounted in the back of a truck. And I'm like, where in the world would they get a portable crematorium? And I, what, what is a portable crematorium? Is that a real thing? And so I did look this up. The thing that I found out that was actually recent was that Russia was using vehicle mounted incinerators to hide evidence of battle, battlefield casualties. So, yeah. And, and so I think those are more associated with casualties in war. And um, according to the members of the Four Pie Cult, its victims were mainly hitchhikers, drifters, and runaways, with an occasional, for real, volunteer from the ranks. So seriously, some people would volunteer to be sacrificed. And they, wow. I read of an incident of a woman who said, yeah, I'll do it. And she did a crazy laugh all the way until she died um, while being sacrificed. Baker also had a swastika tattoo and tattoos of other occult emblems. And he said that originally he was recruited from a campus setting in Wyoming. And he was from Sheridan, Wyoming. And there's that small community college there. And that's where he started participating in blood drinking rituals and got more, you know, programmed. And then he goes off to California to join the California activities. The It was referred to as, oh, I'm going to do those. I'm going to go to do activities in California. Um, I would have a very hard time believing, though, that any college in Wyoming, of all places these days, would have any organizations of devil worshipers. And I think the cowboy crowd would quickly take care of that. Yeah, I can't. Wyoming isn't the place where I would, you know, peg that. I would never guess devil worshippers in a college uh, community in Wyoming, of all places. I think that's all I'm going to say about the cult that Stanley Baker was involved in when I was doing the research for this case. I literally went down some cray-cray rabbit holes, um, especially when I was going into this cult's related to this cult, and this is a cult that Charles Manson was doing, and they were doing this, and it was similar to this, and all these conspiracies and rabbit holes. I just... It was making me nuts. And so I ended up reading some messed up stuff. I mean, this is really messed up. Is there any evidence that he was just on LSD and making stuff up? Or is there actual evidence that he 
participated in that stuff. No, they cooperated. Uh, oh, boy. They did a really good investigation for the 70s, and they, they cooperated everything you said. I mean, all the way down to the location that it happened and what he said happened and the evidence that was still there, um, which I kind of think it's interesting he threw his 22 in the river but left his bloody knife. The knife. Yeah, yeah. So these two criminals were taken before a judge in California, and then they waived extradition. We're flown back to Montana on July 27th. So this is really, you know, less than a month this stuff's going on. And the pair were remanded in the Park County Jail, which is in Livingston. But on August 4th, the judge approved a motion that Baker, because Baker had already confessed, but they said he needs to go to the Warm Springs State Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. And I don't know if you, I know you pass that when you, when you've gone down Interstate 90, but it's still an open active hospital and it's the only public psychiatric hospital in the state of Montana. And I'm grateful for people that work there, but it is creepy when you drive past it. I'm just going to say it's a very old hospital. Anaconda. Well, Warm Springs is the tiny, tiny town, but it's right outside of Anaconda, Montana. Okay. All the way, you know, then there's a Deer Lodge prison near the middle, you know, it's all kind of in the same, when you, when you drive that interstate, <laughs> you're going past the middle institution in the creepy deer lodge prison. And anyway, it's Montana. There's ghost towns. So Harry Those Stroop, yeah, they are fun. Harry Stroop had remained silent throughout and reports say he was apparently guilty of nothing more than having befriended a homicidal maniac and devil worshiper. Yeah, whatever. By the way, <laughs> Well, they were friends in Sheridan, Wyoming. But by the way, those short lengths of bone found on Baker were sent to a pathologist for examination and definitely were proved to be bones from a human right index finger. And also, uh, I forgot to say earlier, Stroop had some bones in his pocket too. I don't know how he justified that. It's not my pants. (laughs) Baker (laughs) pled. So even though Baker pled guilty, he insisted Stroop still had nothing to do with the murder. However, Harry Stroop was still charged with complicity in the murder, and he was convicted of manslaughter. And as for the claim that Stroop was not present at the time of the murder, the quote, the guard at Yellowstone Park, is what they said, I guess that's the entrance entrance station employee, claimed he turned away three people in Schlosser's car. So they obviously interviewed them. Uh, He identified the people that were in Schlosser's car, which were three people. And that meant that Schlosser was still alive at that time. And both Baker and Stroop were with him. And later, the odometer on Schlosser's stolen Opal Cadet showed no detours for Baker to be, for Baker to pick up his companion. So in other words, even though they didn't have Google Maps, uh, they could tell by the distance to California that he didn't do a detour. I mean, that's pretty good, you know, police work, I think. Yeah. To make sure that they could prove that, no, he didn't take a side trip to go pick up, go back and pick up Stroop. So Stroop, the jury was unconvinced that Baker could butcher the 220-pound Schlosser all by himself, let alone heave the torso into the Yellowstone River. So, again, good police work done back in 1970. Stroop was sentenced to nine years, but let out after two years. However, after getting released, he graduated to meth and was sent Hmm. to prison for distribution of methamphetamine and served eight years. So he served more time for distributing meth than he did for his role in homicide and cannibalism. And then after 
a pre-sentence mental evaluation where he went to the mental institution in Warm Springs, Baker was finally deemed competent enough to be sentenced to life in prison. And by 1986, this is amazing, a parole board determined, so, you know, he got life in prison. But in 1986, a parole board determined he was rehabilitated enough to be released. Oh, my gosh. So his sentence was life, but he was let out after 16 years. And during the time that he was in prison, he was caught having weapons, and those were confiscated from him 11 times. And he organized a satanic coven in prison. So what, I don't know how you rehabilitate somebody who wants to eat people. No, it's, I think it's like pedophiles. Those, those people can't be rehabilitated. How do you, yeah, I don't think he can be rehabilitated, but the parole board thought apparently he could. He also had confessed to uh, April in 1970, the murder of a prominent San Francisco lamp designer named Robert Salem. And he was even asked about it at trial. And he even left a fingerprint at the scene. But he was never charged for that homicide either, for whatever reason. So, oh my gosh. But, you know, good for him. Apparently, after his release, Baker went on to become a top salesman at a sporting goods store. Isn't that hmm. nice? Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of A Current Affair. They're a kind of a news entertainment show. Like, I would call them a cross between TMZ and 2020. But they found Stanley Baker. You know, yeah, well, that's probably from the 80s or the 90s. I don't know. Yeah. And so they did some kind of expose on Stanley Baker. They found him, interviewed him, and did some kind of expose on him. So after that was televised, Baker lost his little salesman job. And then it was reported that Baker died of liver cancer in a quaint town in Minnesota in 1994. Wow. And, okay, I'm going to say, yeah, I... Tell me if you think this is really tasteless and very poor judgment of me, but I've got a joke and maybe this isn't the right time. So you have to tell me, tell Tara, cut it out. Um, all right. So I don't know if you've heard this joke, but a guy driving down the road said, I picked up a hitchhiker, seemed like a nice guy. After a few miles, he asked me if I wasn't afraid that he might be a serial killer. I told him, no, the odds of two serial killers being in the same car were extremely unlikely. <laughs> did you get it that's a power move right there <laughs> yeah did you get it though you got it yes is that yeah is that ter- terrible taste i thought it so was funny. gonna go really bad but it didn't go nearly as bad as i thought okay good okay good all right okay so in all seriousness a lot of times when we're talking about these murder stories the victim seems to just be washed away and just kind of written out in the first part of the whole story and yeah. the story becomes all, all about the bad guys. And I really couldn't find much on Schlosser, but I did see one blurb from a neighbor that was in USA Today. And he said that James Schlosser deserves more than a few kind words. He was a big, quiet, doughy kid with a quiet demeanor and thick eyeglasses. He was a kind of son who called his dad on a Friday afternoon to say, don't worry, I'm going fishing. So, and that, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's like, and nice enough to give somebody a ride. And it sounds like exactly. he, like, must have had a degree and had a steady job. And, like, he had lots of good things in his life. Yeah. 
And yeah. then this yeah. psychomaniac. He, he had great friends. He had great friends. He had great family who was concerned about him and reported him missing right away. Amazing. The trauma for that family, not only losing him, but losing him in that way is that just, way. that's hard to fathom. And not that it would have helped anything, but um, as far as him, you know, being murdered, but that's before there were any, there was any victim assistance for victims. Like there would not have been anything to help the family recovering costs, funeral and burial, getting counseling or anything like that. So I'm sure they, they spent a lot of years suffering in silence about the murder of their son yeah, or family member. Okay. So that was, I mean, really that was kind of a heavy case for me and just kind of being immersed in it all day. But here's yeah. one more thing that's good Especially news. The rabbit holes. Uh, the rabbit hole stuff, like just, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay to not be looking up cult stuff right now. Devil worshiping, that messed me up. But here's kind of some good news because I was kind of following this case on social media from um, the investigative services branch and from Big Ben National Park. So a hiker who was missing for over a week was actually rescued and found safe. A 25-year-old hiker who had been missing since November 9th in Big Bend National Park in Texas had been rescued, the National Park Service said, in a news release. The hiker, Christy Perry, was found awake and talking approximately one quarter mile below the summit of the Lost Mine Trail on Friday morning. So, a Friday after Thanksgiving, I think. Quote, we are pleased to report a successful search and rescue operation in Big Bend National Park. Our highly skilled team in collaboration with outside law enforcement has located and safely rescued the missing hiker. And pictures uh, were put in this article, which, um, who is this from? Oh, CNN. Um, show that the rescuers had to navigate a really, really steep terrain uh, with her in a litter as a patient. So I don't think they flew her out, but it's practically a cliff and almost very vertical from where they had to um, find her and get her out. So the cl- a close family friend told CNN that Perry had been on a planned vacation, but didn't tell anyone the details of her itinerary. So make sure if you're going somewhere, especially by yourself, tell somebody where you are. Yeah. I mean, just having somebody know where to start looking for you and know what your plan is makes a huge difference. Yeah, And I, I, I mean, can't say I'm not guilty of running out the door thinking it's going to just be a short trip, you know, and then right. you just don't know if something's going to go wrong that day. Well, um, as you know, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Everglades and uh, my friend and I were in the Everglades and we did text you and said, hey, this is where we are in case we go missing. Because, <laughs> hey, <laughs> that, truly, we, we kept going down this crazy dirt road, seeing alligators and other amazingly cool stuff. But we were like, hey, that's where I would stash a body. And that's where I would dump a body. We see nobody. And then we see some truck coming down. We're like, uh-oh. Uh, somebody better know where we are in case we go missing. Um, so, <laughs> always a good thing to do. <laughs> it is always a good thing to do. Yeah. All yes. right. Whew. Okay. That's all for this case. And as always, watch out for the company you keep. Be careful with your Google searches. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>
scroll down to the merch button, hit that thing, and find something fun for yourself or the true crime enthusiast in your life.